welcome to the Petri Dish Podcast with Rachel, Lindsay, and Sabria. Welcome to this episode of the Petri Dish Podcast. The topic we're actually going to be talking today about was suggested by one of Rachel's lab mates, and it actually couldn't have been more timely as the Super Bowl was a couple of weeks ago. They thought that we should talk about what was going on with something in the media that's been called CTE. Yeah, so CTE uh, stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a mouthful. A mouthful. <laughs> so we're going to stick with CTE, and basically what that describes is an effect of uh, repeated brain trauma, um, excessive brain trauma, and um, this happens a lot to football players, rugby players. Um, well, it was actually first reported in. So I shouldn't use the word. I don't know if I can should use the word first reported in boxers, but. Boxers were the first athletes um, where this kind of syndrome was described. Um, yeah, so basically what happens is if you have enough blows to the head, you um, there are after effects, and it usually takes a while to um, develop. Athletes that have repeated blows to the head often develop these um, memory problems, executive dysfunction, aggression, depression, um, issues with impulsivity as a result of, of these blows to the head. And, you know, a lot of research is starting now into what is going on that causes this syndrome and what we can do about it. Right. And so kind of just to back up a little bit, you know, we could just talk about what a concussion is. I feel like a lot of people have concussions and maybe don't know about them. And I think that's one of the reasons is because they're very hard to diagnose. So the definition of a concussion is just, as Rachel said, you know, an injury uh, to the brain, which is caused by a bump or a blow to the head from either a sports injury, a fall, motorcycle accident. But more specifically, to understand what um, is going on inside your skull, it's kind of a good idea to think about how your brain is situated inside of your head. So um, there's a few layers before you actually get to the brain. So you're you have um, the bone, which is the skull, and then there's a series of three membranes in which um, within between two of the three, there's actually where your spinal fluid is, and that's also what cushions your brain, and then your brain sits in this. So it has the fluid cushion. So what happens when you actually get hit in the head, whether it's from being punched in the head or um, a football tackling move or whatever, is that you have the initial impact that hits the front of your head, for instance. And then what happens is the brain that sits within the skull actually is going to hit, because the velocity is going to hit the back of the skull, and then if it's a hard enough impact, a lot of times they say that the most the most terrible part of the injury is that when it comes back, so there has to be, obviously, forces back and forth, and they say that sometimes after the initial hit of your brain goes towards the back of your head, if you're, for instance, hit in the front, that when it comes forward again, that force also has a twisting force. So, for example, in boxing, if you get hit straight onto the face, um, that's something that's called linear acceleration to the brain, um, which is something that the brain uh, tolerates actually quite well, versus something called angular acceleration, which is what Lindsay was referring to. Uh, the brain is more sensitive to that, um, this angular acceleration, this rotational acceleration. So, for example, if you get hit to the side of the face or from a blow to the chin, um, or even something they call a hook punch, which causes more concussions than parallel blows, and if we want to put that into kind of a real-life scenario. That's like getting a punch from a professional boxer is, is akin to getting hit in the head by a six-kilogram bowling ball at 20 miles per hour. Ouch. Right. And 
And so one of the things that they actually talked about in this paper that did a really good job of kind of breaking down the neuropathology and neurobiology of um, traumatic brain injury is the difference between professional boxers and amateur boxers and how uh, in professional boxers there was, um, they show something like a 20% chance of having severe uh, CTE. And they think that is due to the fact that in professional boxing, you're in the round, you're in the round, you're in the ring for much longer. Um, there's 12 rounds of three minutes in professional boxing versus three rounds of three minutes in amateur boxing. And also in amateur boxing, you have to wear a helmet. There's also um, thicker padding in the gloves. And so a lot of the things that they see, um, all of these symptoms that they see with CTE, they usually see with professional boxers, but not so much um, in amateur boxers. Yeah, so I think that brings home the point that there's a lot of factors involved in you know, how you're being hit and what kind of um, effects you may have. And so you, know, you may have heard of CTE in the context of football. We've already mentioned boxing. Um, there was a baseball player that was diagnosed this past year um, posthumously, unfortunately. Um, but it also happens in wrestling, hockey, rugby. And one thing I didn't really think about too much until we started looking into this episode that seems really obvious in retrospect, but you don't hear about it as much, is brain trauma in the military, you know, with all these explosions and, you know, the type of um, combat situations that people are dealing with today. There's a lot of issues with, um, with a traumatic brain injury that may or may not be chronic, but has its own effects. So we've identified a few groups that are really susceptible to CTE, but I guess it comes down to actually how do you know you have it and what are the symptoms and how can you be diagnosed? Well, and that's a little tough because how how do you diagnose that you have a concussion? Right. Right. So let's say you fall, uh, you hit your head quite hard, and and actually, let me bring in a little anecdote for you guys here. <laughs> um, in my youth, um, I was visiting my college, and I had gone out with some friends. And to make a very long story short, I fell face first on the edge of a concrete step. Ouch. And I knocked out my front tooth. I split my lip in half. Um, I bruised up my entire face. Um, but being the young college kid that I was, I jumped, I jumped up and I said, all right, guys, let's, let's go out. And uh, my friends were like, you don't have a tooth and your face is <laughs> split in half. Let's take a second. And... <laughs> You know, I was like, okay. Uh, so I kind of patched myself up and I, and I went to sleep. And I would say maybe a day and a half later, I was sitting in a friend's house. We were playing video games. And I couldn't form, like words were coming out of my mouth, but I wasn't forming sentences. So you were doing Gibberish. everything you were exactly. supposed to. You went to sleep. I went to sleep. You know, I, I went out after I fell. Um, and so I actually went to the hospital that night and I, the doctor was talking to me and he was like, you know, when did this happen? And I said a day and a half ago. And he said to me, you know, I can't believe that you are just now coming in because the way that they diagnose these things is they ask you questions. You know, they try to see that you have your memory, you know, what day is it? What time is it? You know, what do you last remember? Um, and of course, you know, I was just like, oh, I, you know, I think this happened then, and it's not it's not very smart on on my part, but but all that to say that it is it is very um, hard to diagnose whether you have a concussion or not because it's just 
you, you know, like I said, they ask you some questions. They look to see if you have um, dilated pupils. Mm -hmm. They look to see, um, they, they do like a hand grasp test. Um, so that's kind of a generic neurological exam. Um, but there's a couple of actual exams that you can do. For example, there's a CT scan, PET scan, you can do an MRI, and there's different aspects to each one. So for example, the PET scan um, is something where you put a tracer, you get a tracer injected into you, and then you get your body scanned. Uh, and so that produces a 3D image of all the functional processes in your body. Whereas the CT scan um, also, I think, uses a tracer, and that um, does virtual slices of any object. So you can see inside of something, um, for example, your brain. So are they looking for regions that have been damaged? Well, for the I know for the PET scan, um, the tracer that they use, I think it's called FDG, um, and it's an analog of glucose. And so they use the scan, for example, if they want to look at um, metastases in the body mm -hmm. because... Um, in tissue with high metabolic activity, that's how they know it's a living tumor, and that's where the tracer will will go. So, in an area that would be damaged, there right. might be less more likelihood that you'd be able to. Right. But what's unclear as of now is if you have a mild head trauma. Right. You know what's what where you draw that line between concussion and not concussion, and how many times you can have a concussion without it becoming something like CTE. These are things that are really. Not well known. Well, that was well, not very what well you were just either. saying about the small blows versus the more intense, harder blows actually brings up an interesting point because a lot of this is focused on football and rugby where you have those really hard hits. Mm -hmm. But recently I, I was just hearing something on one of the news stations and they were saying that they're noticing that soccer players that might not have as an intense hit, but when they do the head, um, they hit the ball. With their head. They hit the ball. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, that it, that's a less hard impact, but since they repeatedly do it so often that they think that there is also significant effects to that because of the repetition of mm -hmm. hit after hit after hit. Right, and another issue in, in all sports, I think, you know, this is not something that I can say I have data on, but anecdotally, anyone I know that played football or you know, any, any sort of impact sport growing up, um, you know, you often get hit in the head and then people are like, oh, are you fine? Get back out there, jump back on the horse, you know, so... Even if you've had a concussion, a mild concussion, you may not even get to the hospital and have any of these scans we've been talking about or any of these tests yeah. because you might be like, eh, I'm fine. Because some of the coaches just and players actually that would have been interviewed in some of the, especially I think I was reading one of the rugby um, reports, they say that the players come over to the sidelines, they pass whatever cognitive tests they need to pass, and they just want to go back out and play. Right. So, Well, I bet a lot of it is too, like just the adrenaline of mm -hmm. you know being on the field, playing, wanting, wanting to get back out there, and not right. taking a moment and being like, is this going to happen? Right. So, you know, defining these things is really important for future research into into what's going on. Well, and especially for concussions, because there's no gross pathology for it um, and there actually is no abnormalities structurally um, that you can't really see. So that's the uh, another reason why it's so hard to definitively be like you've had a concussion. Right. And then when you're talking about CTE, which happens after these repeated traumas or, you know, even really, you know, it's, it's unclear how many how many traumas and the intensity of traumas that cause CTE, but let's just say major issues over time, um, it's even less clear how to draw the line between the concussions you've had in the past and symptoms you may be having many, many years later. Right, and so some of the statistics on that, um, what they call the post-concussion syndrome, which is like the headache and the dizziness and the forgetfulness, is that um, 
anywhere from 40 to 50% of people have the post-concussion syndrome, but they recover anywhere from days to weeks. But it's these people that um, have the symptoms for up to a year, which are anywhere from the range of 10% to 15%. So as of this moment, there are no FDA-approved diagnostic tools. That's not to say that there aren't some in clinical trials, but nothing has been FDA-approved in terms of diagnosis other than after someone has died and they can um, look at the brain and see what kind of pathology it has. But in, in living people that may be having symptoms, there's no FDA-approved test to say definitively, you have CTE. Um, so, you know, you may have heard in the news, there have been some football players coming out recently and saying, I've been diagnosed with CTE. And, you know, they're not wrong in the sense that they've been in these trials and, you know, people are saying, well, you're showing these signs that we think are linked to CTE, but a lot of this is ongoing research um, because, you know, there's a lot of difficulty with controls. So basically, you have people coming in who say, you know, I am an ex-football player, I've had many blows to the head, I'm feeling really depressed and I'm having aggression issues. And, you know, they test those people and they say, okay, well, you have these markers that may be associated with with CTE, so maybe you have CTE, but they haven't really conclusively said, you know, that those things are not also present in people that don't have CTE. Right. You know, they have to do really rigorous studies to be able to say specifically um, that someone has this disease. And, and along with the controls, like you, there's no good control. Like you don't have a clone with you that you were the one out in the field, and this other person was never hit, but you have the exact same everything else. Right. Well, like it's really hard to find people who have played professional sports that have not had blows exactly. to the head. So if you're trying to find somebody who's similar, who you know, really physically active, has done a lot of that kind of stuff, that has not had blows to the head, it's, it becomes very challenging. But I think the recent public publicity of it and the dialogues about CTE, CTE do something good. And I think what, what it does is that now more people can go and get tested because they're aware of, oh, wait, maybe I also have these symptoms. Maybe I should go to a doctor and really develop whether or not I fall into these categories, and maybe I'm in a, a similar group as these people who are being labeled as having CTE. Um, and I think when you have the public being more aware, you can accumulate more people. And I think that's another part of the study that is needing to grow is that they need more people. Right. I mean, it's, their end number is quite small right now. I think they only have something like nine players that have have gone to get tested. So we keep saying people or players are getting tested and test for this, but what are we actually talking about when we say test? Like, what are we testing for? The way that CTE is being diagnosed currently is um, after someone has died, they look at the brain and they can look at different um, pathologies in the brain um, in in that person's tissue, but what would be much more useful is to be able to find that out while the person is still alive and then mm -hmm. hopefully do something about it. So um, what they find in people with CTE now is that their brain has all these things called plaques and tangles, and you may have heard about that before in the context of Alzheimer's disease. So you have um, these, these plaques and tangles are basically uh, fancy pathology words for um, these aggregates of proteins. You have a bunch of proteins in the brain that kind of they are misfolded or unfolded or they, they basically make a mess. You know, things are not being cleared out the right way and people are doing a lot of research into why that happens in Alzheimer's and also in CTE. Um, but, but basically you have these accumulations of proteins that shouldn't be accumulating and they cause, they cause issues in the brain. So one of these proteins is tau 
And uh, one of the tests that these people have been talking about that where they're getting, you know, quote unquote diagnosed, but not quite, it hasn't been FDA approved yet, is looking at tau in, well, so it's, they're using tau as a biomarker, right? Which is, um, a biomarker is basically just, and it's a measured characteristic, which could be used as an indicator of a biological state for cancer. And so I know for CT, they either use tau or this thing, ironically enough, called NFL, uh, which is a neurofilament light. Mm -hmm. And the way that they get them is through a lumbar puncture. Right. Um, So they take a sample. And so, you know, one of the things that um, you could imagine is that, okay, well, what if someone on the field has a concussion? You know, it's obviously not very feasible to take a lumbar puncture from, you know, take these multiple samples after every time you think someone has a concussion. And so they have also looked at um, looking at these in the blood as well. Right. So, I mean, there's there's a bunch of different ways. Basically, you have a biomarker. Um, You can look at it in different different ways. So. Sabria just mentioned in, in the spinal fluid, in the blood. You can also, going back to PET scans, you can label different, um, you could label these aggregates, theoretically, um, and, and look at it on a scan. So it would be like a more specific scan for what's going on um, in your body live. Like kind of looking at what we look at posthumously, but in, in a real live person. Um, right. that's, that's sort of one of the goals. Um, so a lot of these things are in progress, and they're testing them, and uh, hopefully something will be um, clearly proven soon, because being able to know who has CTE does a couple of things. One, I mean, I got the impression from reading a lot of these articles that it gives people a great deal of relief just to know that, you know, whatever symptoms that they're having have some kind of cause. You know? Well, they it's basically a name for this. Right, and it's it's confusing, and you know what's really tragic is there isn't a lot that can be done at this point. Um, they can treat some of the symptoms, like you know depression is a common one. You could you know treat the symptom, but not necessarily the cause. And um, and yet, I think it gives people a feeling of sort of at least okay, I know what's going on. I'm not as confused. Right, and it makes it a little bit more manageable. And some of the things that they also touched on is um, even though that there's no cure. Um, some of these football players that have gone and been tested and they, you know, claim they definitively have CTE, they do things like they change their diet, they, um, you know, stress less, which, you know, sounds very easy. But but at least it gives you somewhere to start. And um, being able to accurately figure out who has CTE and who doesn't is going to be completely critical to testing any kind of drug that's out there. Because if we want to know if it's helping people with CTE, we need to know who has CTE. This is really like early, early days of being able to do anything about this disease, but at least it's in progress. And there's a lot more money getting um, funneled into this type of research right, now. Even by the NFL, actually. There's also a little bit of um, efforts towards making uh, how to prevent the um, injuries from the beginning. So um, helmets, for instance. So there's a lot of um, research in conjunction with wearing bike helmets while you're biking. Um, also, there's a lot of development into the helmets that football players wear. But it's not going to prevent them because basically one analogy that I thought was really powerful was the idea of your, if your brain is an egg. So the shell would be the helmet and your skull. And you can reinforce that and reinforce that and reinforce that. But the fact that means that inside the egg and your brain can still be moving around. Mm-hmm. Right. It's um, scrambled, as it were. Exactly. So, I mean, 
I think that anything, especially a helmet, that would be able to diffuse the initial blow will be helpful, but I don't think it will completely prevent injuries based on just wearing a helmet in that instance. Um, but one of my favorite facts uh, in researching this podcast was the research on woodpeckers. So everyone knows that bird will <laughs> peck against a tree repeatedly. And so there are these groups that are looking at woodpeckers and being like, well, they wouldn't keep doing this if they were brain damaged, would they? And so there was actually a really cool study where there's a movie, and we can put up a link to it when we post this episode, where they can look at, um, they can take high-rate images so they can slow it down, they can look at the um, physics behind what's going on. And they've been able to identify that the fact that the woodpecker doesn't experience any injuries can be um, contributed to a couple things. So they have a different type of skull structure and also the way that they hit the tree mm -hmm. um it's not they tilt their heads and so the impact is distributed differently and they also have uneven their beak is uneven so there's a lot of physics behind it but i think it's a interesting idea to look at an animal that one would predict yeah. would have repeated injury and see what injuries. is put in place in nature mm -hmm. and how that could be further applied to research and preventing injuries in humans Right, because I mean, you can you can cushion things. You know, helmets today have have some kind of cushion, obviously, and some protection. But you could imagine from the woodpecker analogy, if you had something that could sort of distribute the impact better mm -hmm. than the ones that we have now, that would be really really helpful. Especially since you know we've been discussing the way that you're hit makes such a huge difference on what happens to your brain. You know, if we could modulate that by using Know, smart helmet technology. And, and one other cool thing that's going on with helmets is they want to um, put these accelerometers in helmets to be able to show just what's happening because a lot of the, the different types of impacts in different situations, say, you know, if you're in the military and you're in a, in a vehicle and there's a roadside bomb, you may have, you know, a primary impact. You may have your head hitting the side of the vehicle you know, there's a lot of different things going on. So studying these different types of scenarios can be really helpful in designing proper equipment. So I think the big take home here, at least for me, after looking through all this research, is how much more we need. I mean, this is really an area that um, is a black box. You know, there's, there's a lot that we know about what the after effects of these injuries are, but we don't even know really what the causes are in the brain. Like, you know, figuring out what to even target is, is a difficult thing in this case. And, you know, these brain injuries, these, uh, you know, CTE, I'm not sure if we mentioned, is a neurodegenerative condition, kind of like Alzheimer's. So um, because the brain is changing over time in these, in these uh, instances, getting a full picture of what's going on and how to stop it is really difficult. So a lot more needs to be done. Um, well, it's very I, variable, right? I mean, just because you have a bunch of repeated blows doesn't necessarily mean you'll get CTE. Right. Just because you have a traumatic brain injury doesn't necessarily mean you'll progress to CTE. Right. And so it's just, yeah. I mean, like Rachel said, it's just this black box of But I think questions like what that we've need to be answered. We've also been emphasizing is that this is really the beginning of it. They're now looking for ways to make a test that people can take while they're still alive and they're not waiting till after the person has passed away mm -hmm. and then be going back and being like, oh, that person had it. Right. right. And at least being able to manage symptoms at this point would be an improvement over, over what's been going right. on before this. And, and you know, like we said, a, a, more, a more definitive test mm -hmm. needs to be um, made, one that's FDA approved and one that um, 
can definitively say, you know, you have these symptoms and this will lead to CTD. And I, I think that we are kind of far from that, but at least we're taking the steps in the right direction to, to get to that goal. So we hope you enjoyed this topic. And as we said in the beginning, this topic was suggested to us by um, a colleague of ours. So if you have any topics you would like to hear, feel free to email us at the Petri Dish Podcast at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook and uh, rate us on iTunes.